1: This is DeRay, and welcome to Batsy of the People. On this episode, we have Dr. Brandon Terry to help us think about Dr. King and his work. We're in a similar situation right now where we've got a bunch of Byzantine ways that the GOP
2: is trying to ensure what amounts to minority rule. They're not a majority. They, they ne- probably never will be again. Um, so they've got all of these different
1: technologies to suppress the vote. And the news, as always. Before we jump in, though, I'll share something that I've been thinking about. Recently, I had an in person conversation with Dr. Brene Brown, uh, who is most known for her work on shame and guilt. And it made me think of one of her quotes that has always resonated with me about perfectionism. Now, the preface to this is that she talks about guilt as the idea that I'm a person who's done bad things or things I'm not proud of, shame is the idea that I'm a bad person. She says, wherever perfectionism is driving, shame is riding shotgun. Perfectionism is not about healthy striving. It's not about trying to set goals and being the best we can be. It's basically a cognitive behavioral process that says if I look perfect, work perfect, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid shame, ridicule, and criticism. It's a defense mechanism. And you know, I stumbled back across that the other day and it made me think about all the ways perfectionism is actually showing up in my life, where I'm not doing what I know I could be doing because I'm, I'm nervous about being criticized for it. I'm nervous about a failing or I'm nervous about feeling like I did my all and I'm not enough. And naming it is the first step in overcoming it. So my commitment in 2018 is to do better with that, to name it when it comes up and to work towards a healthy striving that isn't rooted in shame. Let's go. Wow. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and Obama's Task Force on 21st Century Policing, and now a current education professional. Clint Smith III, a resident academic. And Sam, a resident data scientist, is not joining us for the news, but he is on the pod. He's traveling.
0: Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pack on all social media.
1: What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. And this is DeRay, at DeRay, d i y on Twitter, Clint Smith, I, I, I. See, I had to hit you up with it <laughs> afterwards, Clint, to throw you off a little bit. I know you thought you got away from it this week, but nah, I'm here. I'm
3: going to just pretend oh, like man. if I don't acknowledge it, it'll go away.
0: Yeah, that's usually how things work, Clint. Not
3: exactly. <laughs> the people love it, just so we're clear. We are missing, uh, we're missing Sam this week, though.
0: Yeah, our brother, Sam, who's traveling the world, but... Um, you know, he's always here in spirit. And his black man smiling picture on Twitter got a lot of love. Uh, people were like, oh my gosh, is that Sam? I almost don't recognize him. Where's his beanie? It's <laughs> wild
3: because he wasn't, he didn't have the beanie or the mean mug. And he was like, and he had this big smile. <laughs> and we people were like, who is that? we were joking in our group that we were just like, Sam looks what like he's just straight up out of a Tyrese video. He was laying on the bed. Yeah. He was like, you know, there's rain about to come down toward the end of the song as <laughs> it fireplace. crescendos. It was it was ready. He was ready out here.
0: So shout out to Sam. Always, always in our heart, Sam, smiling <laughs> in a Tyrese. Speech. He's
1: coming back. That sounded like he ain't never coming back. Sam going to be on the episode. He just, you know,
0: <laughs> you're right. Sam's not Sam is still with us in life. He's I know, just not she's like always in, in our heart. It's like, OK,
1: <laughs> okay.
0: my bad. Um as we are in Black History Month it's an important time to remember that actually there is a Black National Anthem that was written by James Weldon Johnson in 1900. His brother J. Rosamond Johnson put music to it in 1905 and the NAACP actually declared it to be at the time the Negro, now the Black National Anthem in 1919 um, It's called Lift Every Voice and Sing and it is three verses of pure poetry It was written as a poem at first um, and it was. it is is uh, and remains, I think, a real testament not only to what we've been through as Black people, but just how triumphant um, and incredible we are and will continue to be. And I know all three verses for anybody who wants to quiz me.
3: And if you also like the Black National Anthem, Brittany will be singing it <laughs> at Pod Save the People's live show on Brit- February yes. 18th. Did you just a couple do that weeks to from me? now? Buy your tickets. Come through. She's like getting her vocal cords this ready. Is- we, we've been Clint. listening we've been prepping Clint. she's been drinking that tea ticketfly.com and so it's going to be grand get your tickets Clint. ticketfly.com
0: oh, oh you're gonna you're gonna participate in this this is debuting
3: wow. her voice Yeah, i'm the
1: backup um, singer okay. i'm the backup to singer the world. clint's um, the hype man i'm the backup I mean, if you singer.
0: watch my instagram stories i actually play around quite a bit and i did grow up singing this song i did not however say that i'd be singing it at our live show um
3: that was such a subtle flex. She was like, you know, I'll be messing around or whatever on the gram don't if you want this. to follow my me and watch my, my stories. Right. That, is, that but, is what she definitely just you know, just I don't did. take it too
1: seriously.
0: My point is, y'all are such haters. My point is, we did not agree to this.
1: Brittany. we want your talents to shine.
0: <laughs> we do hope that you all come to the live show either way.
3: So as hard as it is to believe, uh, it has only been about a week since the State of the Union address. Uh, it feels like it has been... Several years since that address happened, uh, because that is the nature of the world that we're living in now. But uh, and and there were, you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about the State of the Union and there's a lot to be said. I mean, I was particularly uh, struck by how uh, egregious and disgusting the the way that he used uh, parents who had lost their children uh, to violence as as a part of his political performance to in essence criminalize millions and millions of people Im- implicitly, it wasn't even that implicit. It was like pretty explicit to anyone who has you know any sort of any sort of sense. But it was uh, deeply disgusting and deeply uh, unfortunate, and and also not true. Right, this isn't even my news, but I also want people to know that it is the implication that immigrants are more violent than native born Americans is like fundamentally false. And you can look at study after study after study that demonstrates that immigrants both documented and undocumented commit crimes at lower rates than native born Americans do. Right. Like that is not in dispute. And the way that immigrants are being caricatured to to somehow be more violent uh, than than the person who has the American flag on their house down the street who's lived here for several generations is 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 false, right? So I think that that's important to say. And there's a lot more to say about the State of the Union, but we don't necessarily have time for that. But what I do want to say is that one of the things that was interesting was the way that Trump brought up opioids. And so he brought up opioids. And you know, he, since the campaign, he's been talking about all the different stuff that he's going to do to solve this opioid crisis um, that... Uh, So many people are dying and and I think, you know, I might, and I have the stat exactly right, but uh, I think that there are more people dying now from opioid overdoses than who died at the height of the AIDS crisis, uh, which is a really astonishing number and and obviously reflects the fact that we should be very proactive in taking this seriously. Um, But as with many of the things that, that, uh, is the case with trump his his rhetoric uh in terms of what he 's going to do to positively help people in their lives is not meshed by matched by his policy, so he 's actually done very little for opioids but what was interesting was the example that he used where he talked about the couple that um, w- w- essentially adopted the baby from the woman who was suffering um from opioid addiction and from drug addiction. And it was an interesting example, in part because it was meant to demonstrate the benevolence of this family, um, who 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 did uh, very clearly a very generous thing and, and a really remarkable thing in deciding to adopt this child, and that's not in doubt. But but it, he didn't address the fact that the woman who was overdosing was still going to overdose, right? As if as if the solution to our opioid crisis was that. Uh, that people should adopt the children of people suffering from addiction rather than us helping the people who are suffering from addiction. So it was just a strange and sort of bizarre rhetorical move that did not necessarily actually reflect or seek to remotely address the very issue that is causing, that caused this family to adopt this child in the first place. So that was weird. And it, you know, and part of what it's done is brought up this conversation again about opioids Um and part of what's interesting and important to know, uh, obviously opioids are sort of projected as this sort of white rural phenomenon um, that are, is sort of decimating the white rural community. And and that in in many cases is true, but I think that that also has become a sort of stagnant caricature that doesn't allow us to see the totality and a sort of more, more holistic picture of who this uh, epidemic and this public cr- health crisis is affecting. And there have been a couple studies, um, including one that was recently released, that showed that uh, drug deaths for black Americans uh, are significantly on the rise, that they have doubled, and that black Americans are now dying at the rate equal to what white Americans were dying from opioid overdoses in 2014, right? Which was, you know, in 2014, people were talking about how this was a crisis. And so now Black Americans are dying at a rate that is, that is equal to that. Um, for example, the Chicago Urban League reported that Black Americans count for 15% of Illinois' population, yet compose almost a quarter of opioid deaths. Um, and they are still less likely to receive treatment uh, that they need for addiction, And obviously, as part of this conversation, I'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge the fact that Native Americans uh, and indigenous folks in this country are suffering from opioid overdoses at a rate higher than anyone Um, and that that phenomenon can't be disentangled from you know, uh, centuries of, of intergenerational trauma in which children were, it can't be separated from the fact that like children, native children were put in boarding schools where they were subjected to abuse, where they were subjected to neglect, where they were subjected to, uh, this uh, sort of violent assimilation, right? This like let go of everything you've ever known, all the culture, all the people, all the values and assimilate into this normative conception of what we deem to be, uh, American western values and and that like takes a huge toll on on young people and so you have an entire sort of generation of people who grew up being subjected to to that sort of uh, cultural violence and then who are also being culturally and socially and politically isolated um, who are not getting the resources that they need and I think that we have to understand as as the case with everything have to understand the relationship of that too. Uh, drug and alcohol abuse um, later in life, so that's a that's a lot. But I think it's it's just important for us to know that white people certainly are experiencing and suffering from opioid abuse um, and opioid overdoses. But there's a larger story there, um, and black opioid deaths are are on the rise right now, and Native Americans continue to be uh, the the demographic of folks who are most desperately um, and significantly impacted by. Uh, the reality of this this public health crisis.
0: Yeah, I think what is additionally sad and frustrating about this is that even with the narrative change that in theory would make this issue more palatable to mainstream audiences, to politicians and people who are supposed to stand up and do something about this, there has been very little federal action at all. So this administration has been in office for a year during which time, as you said, Clint the conversation about this crisis has been at a fever pitch. And to your point, the performative politics of the State of the Union could easily erase exactly how little they have done. So the administration does have an opioid crisis commission that asked for this to be declared a public health emergency. That was done last October, um, which in theory is supposed to help remove some of the barriers and the red tape to getting people the services they need. But what they also asked for was a streamlining of funding to make it more easily accessible for service providers, an increase in funding, a big and broad strategy to to tackle the opioid crisis in America, and also the opening of drug courts, because drug courts in particular are there to divert people from jail to treatment facilities. None of these things have happened whatsoever. This has been more and more and more rhetoric uh, and very little action. So even when even when the narrative is something that you'd think would inspire people's urgency around an issue, and I'm not at all saying that that's right. I'm just saying that history has shown us that when narratives have been whitewashed, as you just said, Clint, um, that it, it, it people tend to see more urgent action around them. That hasn't even happened, um, which is another reminder to me that this administration— Um, Is not just racist, it's not just xenophobic, it's not just bigoted. Um, It is also concerned very clearly with self and wealth uh, and keeping that wealth amongst a very small, Uh, A set of people. And so they've spent a lot of time and energy on things like the tax bill when people are dying um, in communities every single day uh, and they're dying at even higher rates than we are talking about in communities of color. And nobody's a lot of people are not doing anything about it, especially the folks at the federal level who really have the power to make this happen.
1: The only thing I'll add is that according to federal crime statistics, Black people are only 12.5% of regular drug users, but are 33% of those incarcerated for drug offenses. We talk about the opioid crisis. We think about the crack epidemic. And this is all within the context of Black people being severely overrepresented in, in terms of who is incarcerated for drug use at all. It's not that there are more Black drug users out there than anybody else is that Black people are just heavily targeted. And we see how, even though the opioid epidemic has made it to the mainstream, that that hasn't actually changed uh, the way arrests are working, that it's created sympathy and empathy around a lot of white people, but even they are still getting arrested. So as much as a public conversation has, has shifted, we've not seen a shift in practices as much yet. My piece of news about Michigan State University President Lou Anna Simon, she resigned uh, a week ago. And this is because of the Larry Nasser sexual assault scandal. So he was the, the physician who was a physician for the gymnastics team and over the course of decades had sexually assaulted hundreds of, of young girls. And it finally came to light and he just got sentenced and convicted, but she just resigned. And I remember it seeing the resignation. And I was like, wow, she got held accountable. She'd been the, the president from about 2005. He'd been there much longer than that. But before I talk about what she knew and what she didn't know, uh, is that she was earning a $750,000 base salary and a $100,000 retention bonus under a 2014 amendment approved by the board. According to her agreement, her resignation is not official for at least 60 days, a period during which she must continue to fulfill her duties if she chooses to return to the faculty after presidency, she could again earn her full $750,000 salary during a one-year research leave. She could earn the full salary for another year as a faculty member, and then 75% of that in subsequent years at $562,000. So some people said that this isn't a golden parachute, but it keeps going, is that there are other lifetime perks for her and her husband. She gets two free tickets to home football games in the Spartan Club on the fourth floor. She gets tickets for bowl games and postseason play for football, men and women's basketball, and ice hockey and for performances on campus and the option to purchase up to four season tickets for men's basketball with the same or comparable location provided to her during the 2009, 2010 season, two free tickets to home women's basketball games in a seating location comparable to the men's games and two free courtside tickets for women's volleyball, a parking pass for each home football game, home women's and men's basketball game and home ice hockey game and two free all event in all location driving and parking passes as were available to her as president. So just stopping there. It's like, you know, you were made aware of a sexual assault a complaint when you were president and seemingly did very little about it that it is reported that up to 14 officials at the university at Michigan state university were aware. So it's like, what kind of climate were you, uh, creating and supporting at the university? But your exit is, I mean, this is like the sweetest deal and people don't call this a golden parachute, but I don't know what a golden parachute looks like if it's not like this.
3: That's really unsettling in, in a lot of ways. And, and obviously all of our thoughts and, um, energy uh should be geared toward the victims over the course of far too many years uh who had their entire lives affected i mean you know i feel like we've had this conversation uh over and over again unfortunately and and you know the the benefit is that we are having these conversations that should have been taking place a long time ago um and and this is a side note, but but I think obviously related to this is that you know there's been a lot of cam- conversation about the Me Too movement and people saying, oh well, the movement's going to go too far. It's going to uh, start to you know it's going to it's going to conflate the crimes of. Um, you know sexual harassment or 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 fl- is going to conflate flirting with sexual assault and it's going to end up treating unfairly a bunch of men who who don't deserve to be treated that way and i you know i think that the discourse that i've seen has been far more nuanced than I think some people want to portray it. I think the conversation, the distinctions between what is assault and what is harassment, what is misconduct, what is inappropriate behavior. I, I think we all know that we, people need to be precise in their language and what they're using. And that's what I've seen. And I think I've been heartened by uh, those who have, have really had like a a really important uh, nuanced and, and precise discussion around these issues and i think the idea that to suggest that that women are going to start to conflate flirting with assault um is really uh i think condescending and and does an injustice or does a disservice to like the work that this that me too and and time is up is doing to unearth things that are happening to to women and men and and non uh, gender binary folks that we should have been having a conversation around a long time ago. You know, I mean, I don't, I just think it's important for us to not participate in the sort of false conflation of these ideas. When I actually think the conversation has been far more sophisticated than some people um, are attempting to portray it as.
0: This whole thing is deeply disturbing to me, not just president Simon, but the other 13 people who knew at least something and allowed this to continue. So first, a distinction, because I, you know, in, in the news that recently came out about Halle Berry and Taraji P Henson's manager uh, in Hollywood of being accused of perpetual sexual harassment over a number of years, um, reminded and Halle's statement, her subsequent statement about not knowing anything, reminded me that. To a lesser degree, there are people who are victimized in different ways, again, to be clear, to a lesser degree than the actual victims of abuse and sexual harassment, but often... Serial abusers, serial harassers will use other people, especially other women who are seen to be credible by their victims or their desired victims, um, as cover and not actually know what's going on. But I think it's really important that we don't just jump on people, women especially, but people more broadly, uh, and assume that they knew something when they very well may have not. Uh, And I think that that's important to remember throughout this, this conversation. That said, this does not at all seem to align with that. That does not seem to have been the case here. Um, it seems very clear um, that, that President Simon knew. And let's be very clear, if she didn't know, if she knew nothing, when you take on the job as president of a university or the leader of any team, you may not be at fault for an individual's actions, but you are responsible for what happens in the systems and structures that you run. And so the very least she can do is take responsibility. If it though is indeed true that she knew in 2014 that there was at least this accusation out there and that there was very little done about it, then in my opinion, there actually should be far more that she has to go through than a resignation. That does A resignation alone does not meet the bar um, uh, of culpability there, in my opinion. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I am a person who cares a great deal about making sure that we turn Me Too into Never Again. And so I am... I am really livid by, as you said, DeRay, the culture that this seems to implicate, um, because it seems like people then and now were more concerned with liability than they were safety, courage or health or the protection of people, students or not. So, you know, you hear lawyers talking about the distinction in Title IX between um what, what protection can be offered for students and people who are not, not students, you hear people splitting hairs saying that they told a coach, but they didn't tell a faculty member they didn't tell someone with this particular title or that existed in this particular band as if someone who is the victim or survivor of abuse should have to know the complex hierarchy of a college administration in order to be heard and to be seen as valid and to be protected. Um, And so there is a, there is a question of culture here. And I think that the question of culture is applicable to every single college and university in this country and not just Michigan State. That is not to say that what is, what happened at Michigan State is happening everywhere. I truly hope and believe that that is not the case. It is to say, though, that a culture that prioritizes Minimizing liability over the health and well-being of every single person that enters their campus for any reason uh, needs to do some real soul-searching and subsequently needs to take real action throughout their systems. Uh, and so I'm, I'm disappointed to see what has continued to go on here. Um, I'm hopeful that the institution will experience a change and that other institutions will proactively change themselves and check their systems so that they don't end up in the same position. And people don't end up in the same position.
1: You know they're they're like 150 uh, victims who are in the university. Uh, one of the first people to to ever notify the university was uh, was a young gymnast who was in high school. And the university's argument is that the only people that they're responsible for were students. So anybody who wasn't a student that they weren't responsible. The university also is saying that. Um, that they don't consider notifying a coach, like another coach, or like the athletic director, actual notice to the university. And like you said, Brittany, it's like, what kind of culture is it that you've allowed to just spread that, that creates a situation and she's not being held accountable at all?
0: I mean, that's a, that, that that's a culture that is morally bankrupt. Right. I mean, that is an absolute abdication of your moral responsibility to take care of people. I don't care if you are legally liable for someone who is not your student. If someone that is your employee is being accused of abusing them, you should take that seriously. There should be no question about that. This is this is almost this is hard to talk about and I, for a lot of reasons, personal and public. But this is, I mean, I'm so disgusted and it makes me wonder just how many loopholes are being found every single day in our institutions and our workplaces and our colleges and universities and our school systems, et cetera, Um, in Congress, right, where all of these sexual harassment claims are being settled with taxpayer dollars, all of these loopholes that are being leveraged to protect a status quo that is not protecting its people. That is a problem. So that was a difficult but necessary conversation. I'd love to bring some positive news into this space to end our news segment today. The good news is that for this midterm election, which if you've been listening, you know, we've been speaking about ad nauseum for good reason. Uh, The good news is that the largest number of scientists in modern history are running for office in 2018. Like we need like a a sound effect or something because that's really exciting. (laughs) There you go.
3: That's the sound of the stars in the sky.
0: There it is. Glistening at their excitement. Currently, there's only one PhD scientist in Congress. Uh, in 2018, mind you. At least 200 people who have career or educational backgrounds in science, uh, technology, engineering, or math, or STEM, are running for any one of the 7,000 state legislature seats around the country. As well, there are more than 60 researchers and technologists that are running for federal office this year, um, which is really exciting. As I said, that's the largest in modern history, and especially at a time when we've got climate change deniers in every level of government um, who are pretending like it was not just 65 degrees last week in at the end of January. Um, and um, given the scandal that we've been seeing come out uh, at the CDC, the nation's premier and preeminent uh, health care institution uh, is experiencing a level of scandal and a, and a change up in their leadership that can really wreak havoc on uh, the services that people need and the research that is being conducted. At a time when that is happening, it is more and more important that people with subject-level expertise in STEM are actually helping to make the decisions. I used to work on the Hill, um, and with all due respect to people who have always wanted to be politicians, there is something to be said for people who understand the field that they're making decisions about, whether it's science and technology, education, housing, um, whatever it is, uh, we need people who truly understand in those policymaking decision uh, roles because they are less likely to be influenced and swayed by the number of interests who figure out a way to get in front of them uh, and convince them of something, whether or not it's true. And so folks who have firsthand knowledge of these issues are incredibly important. Um, and I also think that this is a reminder to all of us that just because something is non-traditional doesn't mean that it isn't possible. I will say that one of the positive outcomes of the 2016 election is that more people are now seeing themselves... As folks who can run for office, win that election, and actually govern effectively, just because something is non-traditional doesn't mean that it can't be done. Uh, and so, this is certainly encouraging, and I'm I'm hopeful that we can go through our week excited that there are some folks with some real scientific understanding and backgrounds that might be populating our offices across the country.
3: So. This is obviously really exciting and really important. I just want to say shout out to all the science teachers out there who are doing the important every day on the ground work of like instilling young people with a love and giving them a sense of how awe inspiring science is. I remember in a quick story when I was in fifth grade, we had this thing called Sunship Birth, and this is in Louisiana. Shout out to Sunship Birth, and they took us. Uh, There's like a bunch of public school kids in New Orleans, and they took us to the woods. Um, and they had this like three-day sort of uh, intensive engagement around like science and environmentalism and nature in ways that few of us had been sort of previously exposed to. And I remember like the first thing they talked about was how the earth was rotating at a speed of a thousand miles per hour, which was something that kind of blew my mind at that time. I had no idea how it was standing still and the world was moving at a thousand miles an hour. And we were just sort of inundated with these remarkable facts that made us so much, much more deeply appreciative of, uh, of the, of the environment and the earth and how, like, uh, how much of a sanctuary, the, the land we walk on is, And it was really remarkable. And I remember that's where I wrote, people always ask me when I started writing poetry and that's when I wrote my first poem. Cause we had this place called, uh, our magic spot where we go, went and sat in the woods and the poem went, an animal is a thing that lives and breathes. We must not mess with its needs. If we do, we'll pay the price with a future world not so nice. And then so I wrote that and I read it and we you shared at supper time and I shared that poem and all the fifth grade girls were like, Oh my god, Clint, that's so amazing. And I was like, Oh, this is the stuff right here. Dang, I gotta poet. the poetry. <laughs> this is I'm just kidding. Obviously, that I did feel that way in fifth grade. I was like, I had no idea that girls like poems this is amazing. But more importantly, to the point, it was such a I, I never thought of myself as an environmentalist I never you know but but an experience like that made me take seriously uh, environmentalism in a way that I never could have before it made me much more deeply appreciative of science and so I just want to say like science teachers science educators traditional and non-traditional keep doing what you're doing it has transformative impacts on young people and and you know if you you should also consider running for congress because we need you out there too
1: that's the news
4: hey It's Sam, and today I'm going to provide you an update on what's happening in state legislatures across the country. There's been a lot of news about what's happening in Congress and the White House, but all too often we don't hear about what's happening in our own state legislature. And yet, so many of the issues that we care about are actually being decided in state legislatures every day. Things like voting rights and voter suppression, the minimum wage, issues like criminal justice reform and police reform, reproductive justice, and so many other issues are predominantly decided at the state level. And right now is the best time for you to be engaged in contacting your state representatives and influencing their decisions on how they can support legislation that supports equity and justice, pushing them to oppose legislation that does not support that goal, and ensuring that your state is a model of equity, justice, and resistance despite what's happening in Washington. For example, did you know that California legislators right now in the state assembly are currently considering a bill that would end cash bail in the state. It's called SB 10. It already passed the state Senate. And if it passes the state assembly and is signed into law, it would prevent people from being held in jail just because they can't afford to pay bail. A similar bill is being considered in New Hampshire right now. And on the voting rights front, there are a number of bills being considered that would expand access to voting. Things like automatic registration, where bills have been introduced to do that in states like Florida and Virginia and Arizona and Maryland and Mississippi, New Jersey, Missouri, Oklahoma, Utah, Washington, and North Carolina. Same-day registration bills have been proposed in New York and New Jersey and Virginia and Washington and Indiana and Alabama. On the other hand, there have been bills that would implement stricter voter ID laws in places like Nebraska and New Hampshire that need to be opposed. That's just a sample of what's happening right now in state legislatures. To learn more, you can go to rstates.org and you can find out what your state is currently considering in terms of legislation on a number of categories. And you can contact your state legislators all in three clicks or less. You can find out what bills they're considering, you can find their contact information, and you can make your voice heard. And now is precisely the time to do that, because there are currently 40 states where the legislature is open for business right now. But in two months, 26 of those states will be closed for business. So, there's this narrow window of only a couple months where legislators will be deciding all of these issues for the year. You need to be heard in those conversations, and you actually have more power to be heard to your state legislators than you do to your member of Congress. Because state legislative districts are actually about 12 times smaller than congressional districts, which means you have more power to influence the decisions that your state representatives make. So, make your voice heard. Go to ourstates.org. Get informed about what's happening and make sure that your state representatives are doing right by you and are committed to a goal of equity and justice for all.
5: Don't go anywhere.
4: More Pontiac the People's coming.
5: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham,
1: With BetterHelp, Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash people. And now my conversation with Dr. Brandon Terry, Assistant Professor of African and African-American Studies and Social Studies at Harvard University. Professor Brandon Terry, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It's a pleasure. Now, you are one of the youngest tenure track professors at Harvard, or did I make that up? Uh... <laughs>
2: It feels like it's getting further away every day, but, but yeah, I'm on the, I'm on the younger end.
1: <laughs> you know, and uh fun fact is you went to high school with my sister, which you don't really that's need right. to respond to as much as like it happened. <laughs> I love your sister. Your sister was great. She's great. Now, how did you become a scholar of the civil rights movement?
2: Wow. That's a, um, so, you know, I've always grown up in Baltimore um, like you, uh, you know, I think you can't help, but be struck if you're a critically minded person, a curious person, particularly a critically minded and curious person of color, you can't help but be struck by the really stark racial inequality in Baltimore um, and the stark concentration of social ills uh, in, in and around the city. And so even as a as a kid, you know, middle school, high school, I found myself gravitating toward those books or those op-eds or those speeches, those figures that seemed to offer an answer to those questions. So I got really into the question of uh, racial inequality, racial injustice and movements for racial justice at a pretty early age. Um, Over time, I became more and more interested in the civil rights movement because it seemed to me that it was the uh, most sustained and interesting and exciting period of contestation around questions of racial justice in American history. And the more and more I looked into it, the more I realized that so much of what we knew about the civil rights movement was really misguided and so many of their most radical ideas had been kind of written out of history and marginalized.
1: Now, I know you've been working on a few King projects about King from a different lens. What have you learned about him or what what different angle are you exploring?
2: So um, you know, the two projects, one is an edited, special edition of the Boston Review that is a book-length form. It's called uh, 50 Years Since MLK, and it features me debating with folks like Barbara Ransby, Elizabeth Hinton, uh, Bernard Harcourt, um, and it's got a lot of great essays from Aziz Rana, Sam Moyn, and other folks all reflecting on the legacy of King. And then the big book is uh, out on Harvard University Press, And it's called uh, To Shape a New World Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King. And there we convene, uh, I mean, one of the most amazing groups of political philosophers that you'll ever see in one place uh, to really dig into King's thought. And one of the things that you'll get from reading the volume and that we got from from writing it is just a sense of how little we know about King as a thinker. Um, So people are very invested in the idea of King as an orator, a rhetorician. Um, People are, Excited and interested about the idea of him as a courageous activist, a uh, moral example. But people don't really think of him as a guy who wrote five books, uh, all of which are, you know, pretty systematic, uh, cover some of the toughest issues and what we consider to be African-American philosophy or political philosophy, ethics. So questions about what should our relationship to anger be? Uh, What are the justifications for civil disobedience? What should it look like? Uh, What makes a war just? Uh, How should an economy be organized? What kinds of political actions are you justified in taking against businesses, even though they're privately held? How should we think about the politics of black identity? Uh, Our relationship to anti-colonial struggles abroad. King wrote about all of these things and and, and really in depth, Uh, In morally serious ways. And that's just a feature of him that I don't think people quite grasp. They have this portrait of him as sort of he's just repeating back to us what's already in our Constitution, already in our Declaration of Independence. It's just the way he puts it. It's interesting. I think that's how most people think of him. Um, But he's really pushing the boundaries of, of our traditional ideas about how to organize a society.
1: How were the ideas able to spread uh, back then in the absence of things like social media? Is there anything that we don't know that like about the way that ideas spread back then? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we know it, we've just forgotten. (laughs) So,
2: you know, the two biggest things that are, I think are really, really important is that one is that he wrote books and, you know, it seems very old fashioned to people. And I understand you know, the allure of certain kind of social media uh, presence. And I think that's important and it does a lot of work, especially now. But the, the thing about longer pieces and book length pieces is that they really do allow you to justify what it is you're doing, explain it to people, make serious arguments, argue with your um, opponents and people you disagree with in public. And, What that does is a really important thing. It allows for people who want to join movements to
3: know who they should
2: sign up with. (laughs) Um, You know, you've got to trust somebody's political judgment. You got to trust the political judgments of the organizations you join. If you are going to put your life on the line right now, you can't predict what's going to happen to you or so on and so forth. But if you're going to make really risky decisions about your life, about your family's condition, You want to know that people have a sense of why they're doing what they're doing, right? Not just action in the abstract, that this is why we're doing this. This is what we hope to achieve. This is the vision of society that we believe in and that we think deserves our assent and aspiration. And he's really, really good about laying that out. He doesn't just go around calling the black nationalist names, right? He engages their arguments, he reads their text, he makes points against them that we can now reflect on as we engage in some of the similar debates. you know so that's the thing I think we've forgotten. The other piece I think is more familiar, but we also seem to have lost a, a bit of sight of that, and that's the the power of face to face organizing um, you know for a lot of the sustained sacrifice that you know contentious politics demand. You're going to need to be able to exchange arguments face to face, win people over, persuade them, uh, and and that really depends a lot on existing relationships.
1: Brandon, I um I did an event in Baltimore not too long ago with uh, King's barber in Montgomery, his first barber, and he talked about <laughs> the mass. Which have you met him? No, I haven't. Oh, fascinating guy. Um, but he talks about. Seeing King at a mass meeting, and he was like, "He'll never forget the first time he saw him," because he it was in that moment that he understood, and it all made sense why King is the person that we remember today. But I I feel like the way he talked about the mass meetings back then is something that I don't know if I've experienced today. Like it felt right. the way he talked about it feels different. Do you have any insight into that?
2: Yeah, I think the mass meeting is a really curious innovation in African American politics. So. You know, I think you hear a lot now about the criticism of charismatic leadership and a lot of that is correct, right? So charismatic leadership in black politics has often been gendered. Uh, it's, it's often been heterosexist. It can rely a lot on the media and its fickle attention span. It's not always accountable. So all the sort of normal objections you hear. Um, but one thing that, that you've got to kind of tease out about King in his context is that you're coming from a long tradition of African-American political leaders who are primarily educators, ministers, other kind of business figures in the community who negotiate with white elites behind closed doors. They say one thing to those (laughs) white elites, then they come out and they say another thing to black folks, and they're always willing and dealing and manipulating and trying to get some kind of meager resources and maintain their own position. Uh, and they're never really democratically accountable because they never say the same thing to multiple audiences. And Booker T. Washington is obviously the most famous version of that. And what King does in Montgomery um, and, and and the other folks in Montgomery, the Montgomery Improvement Association, what they do is they they start having these mass meetings where people have to say what they're going to say in public in front of the church audiences, in front of lay people who come into the church because it's not actually during the Sunday services. It's at night. People choose to come. The people come from different denominations and they make the argument there and the press is there. Whites can overhear what they're saying. Uh, King, you know, Baldwin's got a great line about this. King's the first, one of the first people who says the same thing in front of different audiences in part because the structure is set up that way. Uh, to, to provide some measure. Now it's not perfect, of course. It's you know, but some measure of democratic accountability. And so I, I imagine one of the things that the barber is experiencing beyond the charismatic vigor of King speaking is the sense that someone's appealing to him as a possible political actor, giving him reasons why he should act, reasons that speak to his own interests and and considerations and is trying to persuade him to join something that can change the world. That's not something we do often nowadays. People talk at you. They don't make arguments to you. They don't actually really appeal to you to join anything. Oftentimes, there's nothing to join. And so, you know, there's something about that dynamic that even if we don't want to re um, instate the kind of charismatic piece of it, there is a piece of it that we do want to capture, which is the give and take of argument and persuading people to join and act together uh, in, in political projects.
1: That makes sense. I, I hadn't thought about how different that time must have been. Another thing that I think about from back then is like, what was it like to organize for voting without the right to vote? You know, like we live in a world mm-hmm. where like, as even though there's voter suppression today, we can like the option of voting is an option right. for many people. Right. But they organized in a time, you know, fighting for the right to vote. And I, I always wanted to ask you, is there anything that we can take away from the lessons that they, I don't know, like that seems interesting to me. And I've never really thought about what is it like to organize for the right to vote when you literally don't have the right to vote? Um, mm-hmm. Are there things about that that we don't know?
2: Well, one thing I've argued before that I do think is important is that if you look back at the history of uh, the voting rights struggle, there, you know, because. As a matter of constitutional law, blacks have the right to vote, um, at least black men, have the right to vote since the 1860s, right? Uh, It's just that there are all of these complicated Byzantine ways that people block African Americans from voting, and they're so successful at doing this through the white primary, grandfather clauses, poll taxes, literacy tests, um, sheer terroristic violence. they're so successful at doing this um, through all of these different ways that, you know, they, they basically eliminate the black vote. But what civil rights activists really did is they were able to, to kind of bundle a bunch of practices that work to suppress voting into an idea that we now call voting rights. So when you say the term voting rights, everyone kind of knows what you're talking about. But at that time, there was a bunch of different contentions about whether certain things were legitimate. So actually there's a, there's a recent book by a political philosopher named Jason Brennan called Against Democracy, where he actually defends a new kind of test for people to be able to vote. Um, because lots of people thought that was legitimate. And he still thinks it's legitimate. Um, so you, 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 You know, what they were able to do is really link a bunch of these things in people's minds and get them to see how they all work together as a kind of complex to destroy democracy. We're in a similar situation right now where we've got a bunch of Byzantine ways that the GOP is trying to ensure what amounts to minority rule. They're not a majority. They they probably never will be again. Um, So they've got all of these different. uh, Technologies. To suppress the vote you know whether it's voter id laws gerrymandering um felon disenfranchisement uh utter harassment um you know defending the electoral college disenfranchising washington dc and the congress all of these things are part and parcel of an attempt to rule by non-democratic means and what we've kind of failed to do is is a invest people in the idea that democracy can really change their condition i mean i think that's a big difference between now and the civil rights movement there there are less people who are convinced of that idea and secondly we failed to kind of link all of these things into a a, a familiar kind of suite of concerns that we could call voting rights and mobilize people in the same sort of way
1: hey you're listening to pod save the people don't go anywhere there's more to come
5: This place doesn't look like the pictures. Come on, the doors are on back. Ah, Is there a door behind all those spiders? Ah. Ah. It's time to try one that sounds more like a vacation.
1: (sighs) Look at how many spiders there aren't.
2: Where should we lie down for eight consecutive hours first?
5: Relax, you
6: booked a verbo.
1: Are there any lessons for activists that you can think of from from thinking about King's work and the legacy of the civil rights movement activists today? I would say that there are more people who want to make a difference today than than I can ever remember. Uh, but I think people are looking for a way to make sense of it. So what would your advice be to people? You know, King
2: admired and and W.B. Du Bois and he did for himself uh, combine, you know, clear eyed, critical thinking with activism. And, you know, I think that's a really, really important model, because when you when you have clear eyed critical thinking about the nature of racism, the way it relies on fear and paranoia, its deep roots in American culture and politics, its dynamic interactions with economic and technological transformations, uh, you know, just how deeply racism relies on the idea that lesser races, quote unquote, have nothing to contribute um, you know, as, as in Donald Trump's recent comment about the, the so-called shitholes uh, around the world, you know, when you have cr- clear-eyed critical thinking about these things, you know how to target the phenomena you're trying to dismantle, right? So I'll give you a good example. If paranoia and fear is a constitutive part of anti-Black racism, you've got to calibrate protest if you want to be strategic, if you want to forge a democratic society, you've got to calibrate protests in a way that will somehow disarm or dismantle uh, or undermine those fears and paranoia um, to, to achieve your aims, right? That doesn't mean you do everything in a way that's not contentious. King was extremely contentious. But you think long and hard about how will people respond to the kind of protest that, you know, I'm... Arguing for, and in what ways do I expect that it will or won't exacerbate the kind of harms that uh, racism is capable of? Um, so, you know, that's one thing I think is really, really important. Um, another thing I think, you know, he really was pretty expansive about what he thought protests could do. Uh, Shelby Steele had a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, that basically declared the era of black protest dead. Uh, because he thought that the Colin Kaepernick protest didn't go well Uh, and that just seemed bizarre to me Um, you know because although certain kind of embalmed and amber protests from the civil rights movement may not have the same sort of resonance it again is just a um, unnecessary narrowing of our political toolbox to say that certain kinds of direct action protests are off the table we need to do what king did and sort of think experimentally about what are our targets right why are we not targeting businesses directly um who underinvest and uh or, or discriminate against uh, minority communities why are we not um challenging for example the expansion of state surveillance in the national security state with, with, um, more creative forms of direct action. Uh, I think direct, direct action protests, um, uh, after the, uh, the Muslim ban were really persuasive and important in changing the, the conversation about that.
1: Now, another thing I want to ask you is, you know, so much of, um, the footing for King came from a belief in God, And uh, the call for moral courage and moral conviction was rooted in a belief of God. And in this moment, God's relationship to sort of movement politics is just so different. Like the the institutions of the church aren't like how the protests began. It's not how they've continued. Is there a way to is there a way to to call for moral courage without a footing in god and and i i ask or i ask about this generally because with king everything it's so deeply rooted in god that mm-hmm. that i don't that it's hard to make sense of it without the presence of god but i wanted to know what your take on today was or what lessons can we learn or, or how do you make sense of it
2: well you know i i happen to think um like most philosophers now uh that you can still speak passionately, intelligibly and reasonably about morality without grounding it in um theological claims. You know, you can respect those claims and uh that might be one way that people arrive at, at these moral truths. Um, but that it's possible to do it without that. Uh I think this is another reason that philosophy plays such a big role for me in thinking about politics Um, because at the end of the day, we're all dealing with really deep existential questions of what's worth living and dying for what matters, what doesn't, what do we owe to each other? Um, Those are really tough questions. And we're surrounded by a media culture, a consumer culture, a political culture that tends toward um, selfishness, uh consumption, hedonism, nihilism uh, and anti-intellectualism and if you If you want to have a movement that can withstand those pressures. It seems to me that it's impossible to do that without really serious moral and ethical reflection on why it is we do what we do. Um, You can't get by with just platitudes because skepticism is going to creep in. Temptation is going to creep in.
1: You teach um, at Harvard and you teach the civil rights movement. And I have to imagine that you probably teach things that that students haven't seen before, either original texts or or some writings Uh, what would be the things that you are, that like people are most sort of shocked by or surprised by when you teach it? I'm just curious.
2: Of the civil rights movement readings, you know, I think students are are, are most surprised by Martin Luther King's, where do we go from here? You know, it's the, um, and Trumpet of Conscience. Like those are the really radical books from King. And he presses such incisive arguments against, Many of the people they come in admiring the black nationalists, um, more conventional liberals, that you know it, I think his arguments there are really unsettling for people, uh, and they push them, I think in lots of powerful and good ways uh, to, to think more critically about the possibility of a transformative politics even now. so he's got lots of things to say against the nationalists. Um, you know my essay and the volume. Is primarily about his debates with Black Power figures. Uh, the important thing to note is that he actually agrees with with some of their claims, right? So he defends the importance of pride and Black cultural achievements, Black identity. Um, he's really worried about the kind of social stigma that attaches to blackness and the ways in which it can make people. Um, feel bad about themselves. Uh, he's very attuned to, to that. Um, he thinks the best way to resolve that isn't to, you know, um, just reverse the hierarchy of race and say, you know, black people are incredible and they're always right and they're always virtuous and white people are awful. He thinks that's a huge mistake that, that some black nationalists make, not all, but some. Uh, and that the real way to to, to defend your dignity and to you know, achieve self-respect against those kind of racist discourses is to contest them and to struggle against them and to fight them and call them out um, because it shows that you're a person with self-respect and dignity. Um, You know, he also is a stark critic of separatism. So, you know, for those nationalists who thought that the appropriate response to um, white racism or black poverty was to kind of shrink down and have community control over black neighborhoods um, and promote only black politicians and uh, black institutions. He thought that that just was um, a really unnuanced way of thinking about the kinds of disadvantage that black people face. So again, you know, back to our technological question, if you've got robotics and software destroying low-wage jobs, and increasing the amount of black unemployment, um, which happened in the late 60s and 70s, and all, all throughout to the contemporary period. If that's a problem, that's not going to be resolved by, uh, you know, people opening up black businesses. Right. Those black businesses are, are, are largely going to be destroyed by global capital, which operates at a, at a scale that is going to make, you know, your mom and pop shop really um unable to compete with something like Walmart or Amazon and you know, you're, you're missing the fact that, uh, these transformations are affecting other people around the world as well. And that those people could be your allies in a struggle, uh, to, you know, make the benefits of social wealth benefits for everyone, instead of just the the people at the very, very top of the corporate structure. Uh, you know, so those are just some of the arguments. He's also got arguments against violence and things like that, that I talk a lot about in the book. Uh, but, you know, that's a, it's an amazing debate. And it's one that I think people who, you know, nowadays go around quoting figures from the Black Power Movement would do well to kind of sit with and think about, um, you know, how, how do they feel about the kind of arguments that King makes and how would they respond to them when they're trying to channel those discourses into the present when I think many of his criticisms are pretty decisive. What's the name of the book? To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King. Uh, It's by me, Brandon Terry, and Tommy Shelby. It's out on Harvard University Press. Uh, And then the other volume is called 50 Years Since MLK. And that's out on MIT Press and published by the Boston Review. Uh, That's the piece, MLK Now, that I have up uh, at, at Boston Review. But in the actual book, it has all of these great responses from folks like, uh, Keonga, Yamada Taylor, um, Bernard Harcourt, Barbara Ransby, uh, and so on.
1: And, uh, where can people go to follow
2: you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brandon M. Terry. That's the only place I am.
1: <laughs> <Is it? laughs> Boom. Well, we consider your friend of the pod, Brandon. Thanks so much for joining us and can't wait to, uh, have more people read the book. Yeah. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for listening to us today on Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell your friends and I'll see you back here on Tuesday.